Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. See, as I was looking into the deep roots of my faith, into the Catholic Church in particular, I began to realize that almost everything I knew about Catholics was wrong. It was based in part on misinformation, misunderstandings, and rumors. As I began to dig into my faith, I realized that these things were backwards. When I began to look at Catholic sources, listen to Catholic speakers, and read Catholic authors, some of that misinformation, in fact, all of that misinformation, began to unwind. This podcast is meant to fill in those same gaps. The gaps between what you think you know about Catholics and what Catholics actually believe. We have real Catholic conversations with influential Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And today's conversation is a great one. I'm joined by Dr. Francis Beckwith to answer the question, Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? I've got to be honest, guys, this is one of those cases of talking to my heroes. Dr. Beckwith, as you'll hear in the course of this show, is a Catholic revert. Raised Catholic, he eventually drifted into practicing his faith as an evangelical and famously stepped down as president of the Evangelical Theological Society in 2007 when he returned to the Catholic Church. And he figures... I gotta say, pretty prominently in my own conversion. Before I read the stories of, say, Scott Hahn or Thomas Howard or even St. John Henry Newman, it was this guy, this guy called Francis Beckwith, who stepped down from such a prominent position. Someone who took their faith seriously, obviously, incredibly seriously, and who became a Catholic. Was that even a thing, I wondered at the time? The story of Beckwith's return to his Catholic faith kind of forced the question, and it served for me as an important example for my own journey, for my own return to the roots of Christianity and a joining of the Catholic Church. This podcast is brought to you in part by my sponsor, Select International Tours. Have you considered how a pilgrimage might bolster the faith of your parish? Do you have a group of 10 people or more that might travel on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, Guadalupe, the shrines of France, Italy, Ireland, Eastern Europe, or follow in the footsteps of Paul in Greece? If you do, then you should definitely reach out to Select International Tours. They have helped thousands of people organize pilgrimages for over 33 years, and they want to help you plan yours. Visit selectinternationaltours.com slash cordial to learn more. That's selectinternationaltours.com slash cordial. This podcast is also brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, where even one or two dollars a month goes a long way into helping me to expand the mission of evangelization that is this podcast. Every little bit helps, and I'm very grateful for your financial support. That's at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. One more thing, friends. If you could leave a review for this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast, that would be amazing as well. Those reviews help to push this podcast out to new people and to expand that mission of evangelization that really underpins this whole thing. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic interview with Dr. Francis Beckwith. Please listen and enjoy. (laughs) Hi, friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. My guest this week is Dr. Francis Beckwith. Among other things, Dr. Beckwith is a professor of philosophy and church-state studies at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. 
He holds a number of degrees, including an MA and PhD in philosophy from Fordham University, as well as a Master of Juridical Studies from the Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. He is a past president of the American Catholic Philosophical Association, the author of a number of fantastic books, including Never Doubt Thomas, the Catholic Aquinas as Evangelical and Protestant, Taking Rights Seriously, Law, Politics, and the Reasonableness of Faith, and Defending Life, a Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion Choice from Cambridge University Press. Dr. Beckwith, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome, and I guess I would be remiss not to mention that you were also one of the members of the 1978 Nevada State <laughs> AAA Basketball Championship team. I was, yeah. I it was, I can't believe it's been 41 years, but yeah, we were we were state champs when Nevada had a much smaller population, and but it was great. I had some wonderful teammates who have actually gone on and accomplished many great things. Um, but yeah, that's that's one of I, I, it's one of those things. It's the my basketball um, uh, playing as well as the one time I contributed to a book. Uh, about Bob Dylan. Those are my, my two, two things I'm most proud of. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, are those the two highlights of your, of your, your career uh, so far? <laughs> well, that's, that's wonderful. Um, look, this is a fantastic topic, and I'm excited to dig into it uh, with you. It's a, uh, it comes from a chapter in your fantastic new book, Never Doubt Thomas. So I'm happy to get right into it. And Sure. Uh, I want to ask you first uh, a very fundamental question, which I think lays a lot of groundwork because uh, you teach at Baylor University, um, a very a very evangelical uh, community around there, of course, and live in Waco, Texas. And I really need to know how much time do you spend hanging out with Chip and Joanna Gaines? <laughs> you know what? I've not met them uh, ever. <laughs> although that that technically. Uh, that may not be true. So my wife is on the board of the Waco downtown farmers market. And a couple of years ago, I think five or six years ago before Chip and jo Joanne became international stars, they, they, they were actually taping a portion of an episode at the downtown Waco downtown farmers market. And I, I may have met them, but they, they clearly don't know who I am. Uh, that's for sure. But I do have friends that know them well and they have bought uh, in my neighborhood, I live in a neighborhood in Waco called Castle Heights, and there's literally a castle there uh, that has been abandoned for quite some time. And apparently Chip and Joanne have announced on their television program they purchased it and renovated it. And all, all we've had over the past couple of months of all these tourists coming by sort of making their pilgrimage to <laughs> Chip and Joanne's new castle, which, you know, kind of bothered me initially. But now I'm thinking it's probably going to raise the, the real estate uh, <laughs> prices in my neighborhood. So if my wife and I decide to sell, we can thank Chip and Joanne. That's for sure. Oh, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the real meat of our topic is this question, and it's the question of do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? And I have a variety of listeners to this podcast from from non-Catholic Christians to new Catholics to Catholics who are digging deeper into their faith, and even several very engaged atheists and agnostic listeners. And I wonder if we can first start by explaining uh to our listeners, uh, how you first became interested in thinking about this particular question. Yeah, you know, years ago, um, I, I had an interest in the Baha'i faith. Uh, Baha'ism is a, a kind of a religion, a world religion that comes out of Islam. And that actually got me thinking about issues about, you know, uh, when, when different religious traditions talk about God, they obviously have disagreements, but are they referring to the same, the same thing? Uh, and then later on, um, you know, at the time when I first, I actually, my, my first master's thesis was actually on the Baha'i faith. And at the time, I took the position that a lot of people take today that, in fact, um, Baha'is and Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God. 
But later on, uh, as I began to read more on St. Thomas Aquinas and the distinction that he makes between uh, the preambles of faith and the articles of faith, and I'll, I'll have more to say about that, that later, it, 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 I began thinking that just because Christians and Muslims, and you would include Baha'is as well, have different ideas about God doesn't necessarily mean they're not worshiping the same God. And what kind of was the catalyst to have me kind of rethink through this, uh, actually not really rethink through it, but more kind of uh, an opportunity to write on it, was a case a couple of years ago at Wheaton College in Illinois. It's an evangelical school right outside of Chicago. There was a professor there, uh, Lucretia Hawkins, who had come out on her Facebook page saying that, uh, that actually quoting Pope Francis or, or alluding to something Pope Francis had said, that uh, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And this resulted in Professor Hawkins eventually being forced to step down as a professor at Wheaton, because Wheaton College, like many evangelical schools, requires its faculty to ascribe to a statement of faith, which includes uh, a belief in the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And I came out in defense of Professor Hawkins, um, and which surprised some people, because uh, Professor Hawkins and I, our politics are completely different. I think she identifies as much more liberal uh, than I than I am, and also. I think her theological views are probably more liberal than mine as well. But, but my 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 thinking on this uh, is again, as I mentioned earlier, is influenced by Thomas Aquinas's distinction between the preambles of faith and the articles of faith. So, what Aquinas says in the very early part of the Summa Theologica is that there are things that we can know about God apart from what Scripture teaches us. Um, so, what what occurred to me was that. What Aquinas says at the beginning of the Summa Theologica, he discusses those things that we can know about God apart from special revelation or scripture. So he he says that, look, uh, if, if, if we think about nature and uh, reality, we can, uh, we can come to the conclusion that there is a self-existent being on which all reality depends, a creator that is simple, omnipotent, omniscient, and so forth. And it seems to me that people can know these things about God, even if they happen to reject the Christian revelation. So uh, an example that I that I use in, in Never Doubt Thomas, and I've used in several other places, is, is something like this. Imagine you have two individuals, uh, we'll call them Abdullah and Christopher. So let's say Christopher grew up Christian, Abdullah grew up Muslim. Let's say they both, uh, when they become young adults, become atheists. But then they go off to college and they both read uh, in a philosophy class an argument by William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is an evangelical philosopher who defends what is called the Kalam cosmological argument. It's an argument that actually was first developed by Muslim philosophers. Uh, but Bill, who is an evangelical Christian, picks up the argument. And the argument is really simple. It's uh, everything that begins, begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And supposing Abdullah and Christopher both read the argument and are persuaded that God exists. And they say, yes, uh, uh, there is a self-existent creator of all that is contingent reality, and we call him God. Well, supposing, though, that Abdullah and Christopher are unsatisfied with just mere belief in God, but um, you know, decide to explore different faiths, uh, Abdullah, ironically, the former Muslim, becomes a Christian, and Christopher, the former Christian, becomes a Muslim. Uh, each of them comes to the conclusion that uh, the Quran and the New Testament teach things about God that they otherwise would not know through their natural reason. But it seems to me that they don't believe in different gods. What they come to is, is they believe that they, they know more things about the God they've believed in for quite some time. And... So what I argue is that is that when 
the differences between Christians and Muslims, uh, although there are deep differences, differences that uh, about what counts as revelation, whether God is a trinity, but those things are not things that touch on ultimately what constitutes a divine nature. Uh, what is a divine nature? Uh, I think Paul gives us that uh, account very clearly in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17. He says, there is a being that I will tell you about. He's talking to the Athenians that he is preaching to. Uh, he is says, yeah, I've walked through Athens and I've seen all these monuments and temples to these gods, and there's one to an unknown god. I'll tell you who that unknown god is. He is what your poets talk about. He is that which created everything. We live we live in him we live and move and have our being and that is god that is uh, the divine nature a self-existent creator of all that exists but then he goes on to say i'll tell you more about this god that he revealed himself through a man who died for our sins and so you have in acts chapter, chapter 17 uh i think exactly what aquinas is trying to articulate in the summa theologica you have the preambles of faith, those things that we can know through reason. And then Paul moves on to talk about those things that we can know only through God specifically revealing himself in history, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. So what I argue for is not that Islam and Christianity are the same faiths, clearly they're not, but that in fact uh, Muslims and Christians uh in, uh, are referring to the same divine nature, even though they deeply disagree on on exactly what constitutes that nature. We Christians believe that God has revealed himself as a triune being, whereas Muslims clearly deny that. Yeah, that's a really uh, fantastic way of, of looking at it and, uh, and digging into that. And one thing that uh, I, I like that you have unpacked in your book is, uh, and, and again, you used, as you do throughout the book, uh, a Bob Dylan reference. And this was to the person of, of Bob Dylan. So you talked about how these, uh, if uh, Islam and uh, Christianity are both pointing to one singular creator, they can't be pointing to two different creators, right? Like you can't point to two different Bob Dylans. That's right. So, so there is, uh, within both Christianity and Islam, and even Judaism, God isn't just another thing in the universe. God isn't like the greatest being you can think of. Uh, he is, in fact, the being that is, in a sense, the sort of being that doesn't receive existence from anything, but gives existence to everything. And if that's the case, that is, he is the what 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 medieval philosophers and Aquinas would call that which has the fullness of being. But a being that has the fullness of being can't lack anything. But when we talk about things in the universe, we think about things that we can compare them to each other. So we can compare Bob Dylan to Neil Young or Paul McCartney, right? Or we can think of Bob Dylan not existing or any one of us not existing. Uh, but God is the sort of being that by his very nature cannot not exist. And for that reason, uh, once you arrive at that which cannot not exist, it's there's there's nothing else. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And so when we uh, when we conceive in our minds finite beings like Bob Dylan or me or you or or any other sort of thing, uh, it's not our nature for any of us to exist, but it's God's nature to exist. And so once you arrive at a being that cannot not exist, uh, there can only be one in principle. Because when again, when you when you think about be let's say so Bob Dylan, you and me all have human nature, right? But but none of but there's nothing within human nature that requires that any one human being exist. If if for example, let's say tomorrow the entire human race were to be wiped out by a meteor that you know that hits the earth, um, you know human nature as uh, as an idea or an essence. Could, would still be in the mind of God, but no individual human being would actually exist. God's not like that. God 
in the Christian tradition, in the Jewish tradition, in the Muslim tradition, is self-existent. It's his nature to exist. And it's kind of mind-boggling if you think about it. In fact, it's sometimes very difficult to grasp. But I actually think that's an advantage for traditional theism, uh, that God is sort of beyond our understanding. Uh, Nevertheless, if we sort of think about it, um, if God was the sort of thing that wasn't self-existent or wasn't his nature to exist, it would mean that he, in what a sense, depend on something else for his existence, and he wouldn't be God anymore. And as long as you sort of can identify God in that way, you've arrived at the right God. Now, does that mean that everything that one believes about that God is correct? Of course not. Uh, uh, Even we Christians can hold mistaken views about God, right? Supposing um, I think that God has specifically spoken to me and told me to stop rooting for the Baylor Bears and start rooting for Texas A&M. I would probably suspect that maybe that's not really God speaking to me, right? Uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that, I, I mean, I, so I can hold mistaken views about what I think God is saying to me, right? But as long as I sort of can, you know, say that, you know, that God is a self-existent creator of all that is, I mean, at least I got that right. Yeah, and I guess, I suppose you, no one, no no human person in this lifetime is going to get everything right about God. So, in a sense, is it fair to say that all of us are kind of, we're, we're, we're kind of pointing at at God, but we, we all would have slightly different, actually, pictures of, of what that God would, I suppose, uh, in air quotes, look like, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, one of the things that I, I think since returning to the Catholic Church, I, I grew up Catholic, then left, and then 12 years ago returned. The one thing that I think that I would not have predicted that has really affected me uh, is the, the Catholic Church's uh, presentation of God as beyond our understanding. Not, not that he, we don't have any inkling or knowledge, and of course we do. He's revealed himself in Scripture. But that when we talk about God, our language is not univocal. That is, when I for example, God is good, I don't mean God is good in the same way that, let's say, a bowl of soup is good, or that you're good, or I'm good, or Mother Teresa is good. Uh, that has been kind of liberating, and in a sense, it also means that it's okay for us to try and struggle with trying to explain uh, what we mean by God. Um, and that's okay. We can get some, certain things wrong, and we try to explain, let's say, to people, um, you know, what does it mean to say that God speaks to us? Uh, we obviously don't mean he's has a mouth, or that, uh, of course, if we believe the second person of the Trinity has one, but that's not essential to God's nature, right? Uh, it's something he takes on in the incarnation. Um, so, yeah, we can individually get certain things wrong about God, um, and... That's that's not, you know, that shouldn't surprise us. We, it's something that the church itself teaches, and its great teachers have taught, right? Uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, uh, frequently uh, uh, says that, uh, especially when talking about our knowledge of God, is that the only things that we can sort of be sure about uh, are those things that reason can deliver, uh, and that uh, God reveals in Scripture, but even there— uh, our reason is faulty. We can make wrong moves. I mean, even uh, the philosopher on which Aquinas relied on uh, heavily, Aristotle, he thinks that Aristotle got some things wrong, right? And that's, but that's because that, that's why we need special revelation in a magisterium. So I guess, uh, you know, just following up from those last two comments, the Revelation and the Magisterium, I guess that's what we would say is missing from the uh, the Jewish or the uh, Muslim view of God. They're, they're missing that revelation from God to understand him more, even though they are, they are seeing, they're, they're pointing towards the, the same God. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a different relationship that, that, that the Christians have with Judaism than they have with Islam. So I think there's another element here. I think you're right, mm-hmm. but I do think that the, one of the things that does the church does teach is that is that 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 God had a covenant with the Jewish people, but He didn't have a covenant with 
the, the Islamic people. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a little bit of a difference, right? And so if you look at um, some of the documents in Vatican II that talk about inner, uh, religious dialogue, uh, there is that one thing said about the Jewish people that differs from Islam and that has to do with the, the, the covenant. So technically, uh, the Catholic Church does not teach that the Quran is an inspired uh, document, but it does obviously teach the Old Testament is inspired. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of a different relationship, but that's correct, though, just as a technical point that, yes, the Church teaches that there's something revealed in the New Testament and in the person of Christ, uh, not only uh, you know in history, but also uh, that, the, that Christ has imparted to the Church— uh, certain charisms that uh, are manifested in apostolic succession and the magisterium's exercise of its role in interpreting doctrine and scripture. I guess for me, the the interesting thing to kind of consider, and I don't know how much you've dug into the the history of the Muslim uh, religion, but I suppose I mean, I've heard some, I've had some guests on in the past who have dug into this a little bit, uh, who describe who describe it as fundamentally uh, a, a Christian uh, heresy in, in the beginning. So I suppose that kind of gives us a little bit of an insight into well, yeah, they're still pointing towards uh, the same God. But then they've they haven't accepted the revelation of Jesus and of what the church teaches in in a whole in a wholesale way, right? Yeah, you know, some people have said that some scholars have said that in some ways Islam is a kind of variation on what was called the Arian heresy. So, uh, in the fourth century, there was a dispute uh, within the church. Uh, between followers of Arius Alexandria and Athanasius. Uh, and Athanasius, they were both, um, uh, Athanasius, uh, I believe, was a bishop. I'm, I, I, I'm not entirely sure about that off the top of my head. Uh, I know he's a saint. Uh, but they disputed over the question of whether uh, the second person of the Trinity uh, was created or eternally begotten. And it was a dispute about the divinity of Christ. And Arius taught that that, that the pre-incarnate Christ uh, was created. That in fact, there's a famous quote from Arius. He said, there was a time when the Son of God was not. And Athanasius took the position that, in the, the position that eventually won out in the Council of Nicaea, uh, that uh, the second person of the Trinity is eternally begotten from the Father, something that we recite every Sunday uh, after uh, after the homily, which is the the Nicene Creed, and uh, uh, so Arius denied the divinity of Christ. So some scholars have argued that uh, that what Muhammad winds up teaching in the Quran uh, is a kind of um, kind of lesser version of the Arian heresy because he does believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, he does believe that Jesus was virgin born. Uh, but he doesn't believe that he is the son of God. Um, and so, yeah, so there's, a, so there's, there is this sort of historical connection to Christianity. Uh, and so for this reason, in, in my book, Never Doubt Thomas, in the chapter on the same God question, I, I raised, I, I, I argue that Arius and Athanasius worship the same God, but their dispute was over the question of whether the son of God was eternally begotten or created. And I think in much the same way, the, di- the dispute between Islam and Christianity is along the same lines. Of course, there are differences even between Arius and Muhammad. But nevertheless, I do think you could say that, that Islam is a kind of, at least uh, many Eastern Christians thought of Islam as a kind, which it comes out of the East, more of a kind of Christian heresy rather than a separate world religion. I think in the same way in which uh, first century a Jewish thinkers thought of Christianity as a kind of Jewish heresy. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. You know, one of your, uh, I think, fantastic examples uh, in in the book that you use is the idea that, um, and I don't know if this is a if this is a true story or not, or, but uh, <laughs> I guess you say it's it's uh, no, you say it's a real real character. I'd love to know more about this. But this per- this person, uh, a friend named named Pauline, who knew a Robert Zimmerman. 
in, okay. in high school? Because I think this is yeah, a very it's, illustrative it's, example it's, that you used. It's not a true story, but uh, I made it up. So oh, Okay, but Bob Dylan is a real person as far as we know. He is, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> so how does this – yeah, how does this story work to explain um, the understanding that Muslims and, and Christians have of, of who God is? Yeah, so, so, so for those who don't know, um, Bob Dylan was born Robert Zimmerman on May 24th, 1941 in uh, uh, Duluth, Minnesota. And his, his family moved to Hibbing, Minnesota, uh, I think when, when Bob was like six or seven years old. So he grew up in, in Hibbing. And uh, it might have been the other way around. I think he was born in Hibbing and moved to Duluth. But in any event, uh, his family was Orthodox Jewish family. Uh, he winds up uh, listening to uh, – graduates – so it must be – he grew – I think he, he graduated from Hibbing High School in 1959. And so uh, in this fictional story, uh, he has a, um, a classmate named Pauline who remembers Robert Zimmerman – uh, as this young man she went to high school with, he was interested in music, but she doesn't realize that that well, after he goes to New York City and uh, moves to Greenwich Village and becomes this mega folk music star and then a rock star, he had changed his name to Bob Dylan. And so all their life she thinks that there are these two individuals, Robert Zimmerman, who she graduated from high school with, and then Bob Dylan, this folk rock uh, star that she listens to and really loves. Uh, and then she goes to her 50th or her 60th high school reunion in 2019. And uh, yeah, so so her husband, uh, you know, so she turns, Pauline turns to her husband and says, you know, points to Bob Dylan and says, what's he doing here? And then he has, he explains to her, well, you don't know? That's Robert Zimmerman. And she goes, aha. So it turns out, though, during that time, she had she thought there were two people that existed that had different attributes. One, Robert Zimmerman, who she went to high school with, another Bob Dylan. And then at the end, she discovers they're actually uh, the same person. Right. So think of it this way between Muslims and Christians. Uh, Muslims and Christians have have believed that there's this one self-existent creator of the universe. Uh but they have different understandings, right? So Christians believe God is triune. Muslims deny that. Christians believe that uh, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, Muslims deny that, right? And so uh, you could say that um, both of them attribute different things. They, some, some of them may actually believe there are two different gods, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, if they sit down and think about uh, what a divine nature is, they may stay, obviously will still come to the conclusion that they disagree. Now, Pauline has inside information, right? Her husband tells her the truth, right? That in fact, there is, uh, one individual, uh, and that all the things she believed about Robert Zimmerman, uh, turn out to be, uh, true about Bob Dylan, but there's some things she believed about Robert Zimmerman after she became acquainted with Bob Dylan, that turned out to be false, right? So she thinks that Robert Zimmerman never was a rock star. Well, it turns out to be false. He actually became a rock star, right? So her information is corrected. And so we hope that, at, you know, in the afterlife, we're all sort of corrected about the things that we falsely believed about God, right? So you think about that's the sort of situation that her husband is in uh, after they get to the reunion, right? He informs her of, of the true things about about Robert Zimmerman. So, so I come up with other examples. I use the Superman and Clark Kent uh, and other illustrations to show that we can become, we can have, uh, we know of cases where people uh, are, have mistaken views about the same thing. They can either uh, be aware that it's the same thing, or in the case of Pauline, think they're two different things. Uh, but we still think that those cases can arise. And I, and I, I use these examples to explain how Christians and Muslims uh, can, in fact, have mistaken ideas about God, or at least one thinks the other is mistaken, uh, but they're still referring to the same thing. And it's a distinction that philosophers make between sense and reference. We can be referring to the same thing, but have different senses about the same thing. Now, of course, as Christians and as Catholics, uh, we believe that 
that we got it right, <laughs> that, that our sense uh, that what the church teaches about God and his trying nature uh, is in fact true of God. Uh, and we think that other people that may deny those things are mistaken, but we do think that they are referring to the same God, and the church has always taught that. Uh, the church taught, uh, uh, in fact, there are quotes uh, uh, that uh, from, uh, I think, Gregory, I forget which Pope Gregory uh, was discussing uh, with uh, his, his, his interaction with Muslim leaders and refer, says that we actually believe in the same creator. So uh, it's not something new that, that the church all of a sudden uh, decided to become more interreligiously ecumenical in the 1960s. Aquinas himself interacts with Moses Maimonides, Avicenna. Maimonides was a Jewish philosopher, Avicenna, Averroes, Muslim philosophers. And even though he disagrees with them on several matters, the one thing he doesn't disagree with them on is over whether they're, the question of whether they're referring to the same God. He kind of just assumes it uh, in his interaction with those thinkers. Well, this leads in excellently to my next question, which was going to be, what does the what does the Catholic Church specifically teach on this? I know you've just alluded to here the fact that uh, uh, some would point to Vatican II as being this kind of ecumenical break from history and this kind of, uh, you know, in the spirit, in, in air quotes, the spirit of Vatican II, which I will be addressing in length, uh, actually, uh, well, once this airs, actually, it'll have been a previous episode, but we've we've dealt with that in our, in our past episode. This idea of the spirit of Vatican II, but uh, you know, you know, you're talking about this as a continuity of what the Church teaches, teach has always taught, I should say, not this new novel thing. Yeah, there's a document in, in Vatican II called Nostra Aetate, and it, it it actually it's a Latin for in our time. And it is a document on the church and non-Christian religions. And a lot of it deals with the relationship with, with, with the Jewish people, but also mentions Islam and Eastern religions. And one of the things it says is that, uh, that uh, Muslims and, and, and Christians uh, hold to the same view about God as creator. And then, of course, there's the comments about the Jewish people and the, the, the old covenant or the old law. And as I, as I mentioned, you know, one of the things that often some of my Protestant friends that are critical of, of Catholicism will sort of cite that document as evidence that the church is sort of getting squishy <laughs> on on uh, the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think that one of the things you have to, I think we all have to realize, uh, those of us who are Catholics, is that, uh, first off, that the church uh, uh, kind of moves slowly when it comes to issuing uh, ecumenical documents. The other thing that's important to realize is that many of the issues that Vatican II dealt with uh, were issues that, uh, that's why it's called Nostra Aetate in our time, because it has to deal with issues that arise after the Reformation, uh, something that the Church really doesn't deal with uh, in Vatican I, and even in the Council of Trent, where you're dealing with mostly issues concerning uh, the sacraments and Church government and kind of, uh, kind of narrow issues concerning disputes over the doctrine of justification. Uh, by the time we reach the middle of the 20th century, there are large swaths of, of the Christian world uh, that, uh, in terms of Protestantism, uh, where, where people uh, are, 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 grow up Protestant and they're not in, in sort of an adversarial relationship with the church, as let's say some of the early Protestants were. And so the, the church has to deal with this. What do, we, what do we think about baptisms that occur within Protestant uh, groups are they legitimate baptisms, um, and and does God's grace touch those Protestant groups? What's our relationship to the Jews? I mean, this is post uh, the post Holocaust. Uh, so all these sort of issues arise, and the Church has to deal with them. And uh, so, in any event, so I, I think if you read these documents carefully, uh, they are pastoral documents. They do not have the sort of 
uh, of theological precision that you get, let's say, in prior ecumenical councils. In some ways, that's their virtue, and in other ways, that's their vice, right? So if you read them in light of the prior documents, the prior councils, I think they're perfectly consistent with them. Uh, some people will read them in a much more, uh, you know, not as careful fashion, and they come up with things that I think are are not consistent with what the church teaches. But in any event, uh, I, I think that when we read the documents of Vatican II, we have to be very careful to read them in in light of their predecessors, not as a breach from prior councils. Yeah, that's absolutely fundamental. And, and I had Father Blake Brighton on the show talking about Vatican II. He's written a fantastic article or series of articles for Bishop Barron's Word on Fire Ministries. And that was that was his point, that that the Vatican II is, is, a, is in continuity, which I, Pope Benedict also said, it's not a break from tradition. It's not, it's not like we're inventing something new. It's in, in continuity with what the church has always said. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about Catholicism that I find to be you know, having been having returned to the church just twelve years ago, is is this sort of wonderful kind of combination of intellectual rigor, commitment to its principles, and at the same time having a kind of practical realization that the church has to deal with these sort of nitty gritty, difficult questions that arise as a consequence of things that we never anticipated. Who would have anticipated in the 13th century Martin Luther, for example? So, so in a way, you have to sort of rely, you know, so we have thinkers like Aquinas and Augustine and others uh, that are defending the church's perennial ideas, right? But in light of things that are occurring at their time. Uh, so the church has to deal with that. It has to both uh, you know, remain true to its principles, but also take into consideration things that our predecessors would have never anticipated. And I think ultimately that's the work of the Holy Spirit working through the magisterium. And sometimes it's rather messy, and sometimes you have people interpreting it, I think, wrongly. Uh, and in a weird way, it's it's sort of God's way of showing that his promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it uh, will always be fulfilled despite all the machinations and problems of an organization run by human beings. It is sort of remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've often heard it said that the Catholic Church is its own best apologetic for the existence of God and, and, and that being the Church of Christ. Because, you know, in all this time, we haven't managed to, to muck it up to the point of, uh, uh, you know, of destroying it yet. <laughs> yes. All right. So one might, and many do, object to the idea you're presenting here. And one objection might be, uh, that you deal with in the book is that since Muslims don't believe in this Trinitarian God the way some Christians, in the same way, I should say that Christians do, um, this means that they can't possibly be worshiping the same God. How do you reconcile the Trinitarian God of Christianity with the God of Islam in this way? Well, we have to remember um, what exactly... Uh, why exactly Christians believe in the Trinity. So let's begin with uh, the understanding of the divine nature that Christians uh, inherit from their Jewish brothers and sisters. So uh, what is that view? It's the view that there is a self-existent creator of all that exists. He's omnipotent, omniscient, simple, eternal, he doesn't receive being from another. That is to say, he is self-existent. He gives being to all that exists, uh, that receives its being from another. So now, that's just a fancy way to say God's the creator of everything. Uh, what is it? Uh, that's something that Moses is 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 told uh, by God, right? Uh, it, it, when he meets God in the burning bush, I am who I am, the self-existent one, right? Who should I say sent me? I am who I am. So that's what we inherit. But then we discover something. God reveals something to us in the New Testament, which is astonishing, that Jesus himself, 
when conf- in John eight fifty eight, he says, "Before Abraham was, I am." He identifies himself with that revealed to Moses in the burning bush. So now we have this situation. Uh, then, of course, there's the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, we know the Holy Spirit is God because of the way in which the Holy Spirit's uh, ministry is described in the New Testament. In fact, there's that when, when, when Peter it confronts Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, he said, you do not l- lie to man, you, 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 you lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God, right? So, so, so God reveals that he is not only Father, he is also Son and Holy Spirit. So now the church, given what we know about the divine nature, the self-existing creator of all that is, has to figure out what does it mean for God to be three and yet one at the same time. Now, Muslims deny that revelation in the New Testament, but yet they still refer to the self-existent creator of all that exists. In fact, Moses Maimonides, the great Jewish philosopher, uh, in his early work, thought that Muslims were closer to Judaism than Christians were. In fact, he kind of thought Christians believed in idolatry, that we believed in three finite gods. And later on, though, uh, as his own thought developed, he came to the conclusion that uh, that there was some, that Christians, in fact, worshipped the same God as Jews did. Uh, but my, my point is that 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 if you look at the way in which Christians themselves began to realize the triune nature of God. Uh, after all, it wasn't until the fourth century that Christians actually nailed down exactly what we meant we mean by the Trinity. Now, Christians obviously believed in the Trinity long before the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, but they didn't really articulate a clear uh, understanding of it until the end of the fourth century. So. Uh, I think so. So to, to get back to your initial to, to your question about uh, Muslims and 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 and, and, and Christians, uh, uh, we think that Muslims are mistaken that they should in fact accept the revelation of God in the New Testament, but they don't accept it. Uh, but they still refer to the same God because they do embrace that idea of God as Creator. That's important. Uh, that's fundamentally important. In fact, to, to draw an analogy uh, with uh, a, a, a religious group that, in fact, seems to accept the Trinity but denies the divine nature uh, is, is the Latter-day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They, if you read their literature, they, they, they say they believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you look at what they believe about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three finite beings, uh, two of whom are physical beings. They believe that God the Father and God the Son uh, have bodies of flesh and bone like we have. And so they deny that God has a divine nature like traditional Christians, Muslims, and Jews have thought of the divine nature, that God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. In fact, they believe that God is, in a sense, almost a creature in the universe, uh, but a very powerful creature. So I would say that in the case of, of, of Mormons, even though the Mormon Church says they believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they, in that sense, believe in the Trinity, uh, they don't worship the same God that Christians or traditional Christians do. Now, uh, as a technical matter, I think there are many Mormons that, in fact, uh, may not have a full understanding of their own faiths, uh, beliefs, and in fact, uh, by the grace of God, do worship the same God uh, that Christians and Muslims and Jews do. But I, you know, but in terms of the official doctrine, I think the Latter-day Saints don't even get the divine nature right. Well, that's a very fascinating distinction. I have had a long love and interest in in Mormonism, and I find that very interesting. That despite their their professing to believe in the Trinity, what they believe about uh, the Trinity, and then subsequently about God, is is more mistaken than a religion that would just posit God in the way that uh, Catholic Christians would. 
Yeah, in fact, I, I, I've said that, that I think that, that uh, Catholicism is closer to Islam than it is to Mormonism. Hmm. <laughs> and, it's, you know, and, and, and I say that with great affection for the Mormon people. I have several friends who teach at Brigham Young University who I dearly love. I've been invited to speak there. Uh, I gave a series of lectures there eight years ago and then have spoken at uh, two academic conferences at BYU. I've addressed the uh, Latter-day Saint Public Affairs Office. I actually gave a workshop there on Catholic social thought. So I have great affection for the Mormon people and, 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 and envious of, of many of their cultural accomplishments. So I say that you know, when I when I offer this, this analysis, it's for – I mean, I, I wish that they in fact – would move closer to uh, more traditional understandings. And in fact, I will tell you from many private conversation with conversations with LDS scholars, uh, many of them hope the same as well. And I think that there is a movement within Latter-day Saint theology to kind of nudge the church more tr- to traditional understandings. And I think there's enough resources in at least early Mormon thought um, that would justify it. If you read, uh, for example, the Book of Mormon, uh, which is, I don't consider to be inspired scripture, the view of God embraced in the Book of Mormon is actually quite, quite, quite traditional. Most of the problems that arise in Mormon thought, at least from a Catholic perspective, occur later in, in, in the Mormon church. So I think you can, you know, here I, if I could assist my Mormon friends, I would I think you can make an argument that they, you know, that that there is a that, that maybe the latter uh, uh, Joseph Smith was more metaphorical than we think, right? He wasn't meant to be literally interpreted. So, if I could give them an argument <laughs> to move them in that direction, so well, that's yeah, that's a fantastic perspective to share. Okay, so I have one final question for you here as we wrap up, and. You know, I was doing some uh, reading around this topic, and I came across a great uh, article by a fellow Canadian, so I've got to give him uh, credit where credit is due, Uh, Dr. Randall Rouser out of Taylor Seminary Uh. in Alberta. And he was responding to some of the discussion around this topic, uh, the same discussion that you uh, engaged with, uh, which spawned this chapter in your book. And one question that he had that really, I think, pulls at a very important thread is what does it mean to say we worship the same God? So I wonder, in in closing, how you would respond to that question. I mean, practically speaking, what does it mean to say that Christians and Muslims are worshiping the same God? Yeah, what does it actually mean to worship, right? Um, Yeah, that's a a question I've wrestled with. not so we think of you know um, we, we usually the term is used by Christians as a word you worship on Sunday, right? So it could mean everything from at least from within Catholicism accepting the sacraments, right? You're sort of you're saying that God is worthy of praise and honor, right? That's one way to think of worship, right? And one way that we express that is by receiving the sacraments. Uh, the other is to be in submission or obedience to God, right? So, uh, so, so uh, most pr- some uh, low church Protestants think of it as sort of kind of raising your hands and totally giving yourself to God. So I, I you know, it's I, I don't quite know exactly what worship is, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> and, and I remember when Rouser wrote that because it was, I think he, you know, he kind of involved himself in that debate that several of us were involved in. Uh, about the Lucretia Hawkins uh, situation. So there are some people, and I don't know if this is Rouser's position, but there are some people that kind of have said in response to my initial articles uh, is that um, that uh, that Christians, uh, that, that Christians, Muslims believe in the same God, but don't worship the same God. And that's an interesting perspective. So for them, it, it, what they're saying is that because they that Muslims don't get the concept of God quite right in their mind, they don't worship the same God, but they refer to the same God. And I, I, I'm hesitant to agree with that because I think there's that one uh, passage where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and he says, uh, you don't know, we know what we worship, whereas you don't know. And so it seems to me that one could actually worship 
a God that you're not fully aware of. So I, 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 I'm hesitant to go, go in that direction. But what exactly constitutes worship, I, I don't quite know. I mean, I think all the illustrations I used are sort of examples of it, but I'm not sure you can sort of define it precisely in a way that doesn't appeal to kind of paradigm cases. Yeah, I think the uh, couple of examples he gave were uh, some fantastic examples of Christians and Muslims just living out their faith. So I guess at a practical level, you know, if we're saying we worship the same God, what is that going to look like in our lives, the choices we make and the way we, I guess even you could go so far as the way that Catholics reach out to our Muslim uh, neighbors, our Muslim uh, friends, our Muslim relatives or, or associates in, in the workplace or at school or, or whatnot. I mean, how, does yeah. we, how do we practically live that out? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's another way to think of worship, right? It's, it's not only sort of right belief uh, and, not e- and more than just liturgical expression, but also the deeds that we uh, engage in, right? So you think of the way in which uh, Jesus describes the last judgment in Matthew 25, right? The difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and didn't do. Right. And the goats wind up saying, yeah, but we believe the right things. <laughs> right. But it wasn't the beliefs. Right. It was the practices. Yes. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. And it's something to certainly to reflect on as I think about uh, this, this whole idea. Well, I want to say thank you so much for being on this program. This has been fantastic. Uh, I, I think listeners will really enjoy the discussion. We'll, we'll learn a lot and give them a lot of food for thought. Is there anywhere you'd like to uh, – I mean, this discussion is grows out of a uh, fantastic chapter in your new book, Never Doubt Thomas. Uh, anywhere else you want to point people to to find out more information about you, what you're up to, what, what you've written, and that sort of thing? Well, they can go to my website, francisbeckwith.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-S-B-E-C-K-W-I-T-H.com. And there, uh, you know, there, you get access to some of my articles uh, where I'm speaking and books and so forth. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I'd encourage listeners, that'll be in the show notes as well. Definitely check that out. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I want to say God bless you and your family and the fantastic work you are doing in the heart of Waco, Texas, down there in in uh, in Chip and Joanna Gaines land. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, uh, Keith. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. I hope you enjoyed that fascinating discussion with Dr. Francis Beckwith. Check out the show notes in your podcatching app or at thecordialcatholic.com for links to uh, Never Doubt Thomas, Francis Beckwith's fantastic new book, and his website where you can check out more of his publications and what he's up to, where he's speaking, and all that sort of thing. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and send your feedback, email, criticisms, critiques, encouragements to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. Please subscribe to or follow this podcast wherever you find it if you can, and please do leave ratings and reviews. Those are fundamental in helping push this podcast out to new people. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support this ministry, the work of evangelization I'm trying to do with this podcast, even one or two dollars a month over at patreon.com slash cordial catholic helps to keep this thing running, helps me to expand this work, and I'll give you a free behind the scenes show which releases at least once a month for patrons only. It's a behind the scenes look at the show, upcoming guests, snippets from interviews, and that sort of thing. If you're interested in helping, even $1 or $2 a month goes a long way. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic. I do thank you for listening. Thank you for your prayers. I am praying for you. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you next time.
This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial a special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.